From the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Inside Politics from Please Explain. I'm Jacqueline Maley. It's Friday, October 27. This week, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese travelled to Washington, D.C. for meetings with US President Joe Biden. The President and First Lady have welcomed the Prime Minister and his partner to the White House. The dinner date following the announcement of a... Top of the agenda for discussion was the AUKUS submarines deal. Albanese also wanted to talk about the trade of critical minerals, commodities which represent a growing export market for Australia. But this agenda was complicated by the domestic politics of the US right now. The looming crisis in Washington. The The clock is ticking to avoid a government shutdown with less... Against all odds, Congress found a way to avoid a government shutdown. The bill is passed and without objection, the motion to reconsider... Back on the home front, Indigenous leaders emerged from their week of silence following the failed voice to parliament referendum. And they released a letter which said that the majority of Australians had commissioned a, quote, shameful act by voting no, whether they knew it or not. So what does the Prime Minister hope to achieve in Washington? Will his efforts in Washington score him any points at home after the catastrophic failure of the referendum? And what will Albanese do now on the issue of Aboriginal disadvantage? Our chief political correspondent, David Crowe, is in Washington, so this week Bruce Wolpe joins us for the US part of the chat. Bruce is a senior fellow at the United States Studies Centre. He worked for Prime Minister Julia Gillard and he has just written a book called Trump's Australia. Later on, we will welcome our federal political correspondent, Paul Sakal, to discuss the aftermath of the voice referendum. Bruce, welcome to Inside Politics for your first time. It's fantastic to be here with you. Thank you so much. It's lovely to have you. Now, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is in Washington for a four-day trip to visit President Biden and to have bilateral talks with him. What are the main goals for the trip from the Australian side? This relationship is about as deep as the United States has with uh, any other country, and I include Israel in that, and I include the United Kingdom in that, and Canada in that. And it has many layers to it. It's a, it's a relationship of trust, and I think this visit symbolises that. This is the ninth visit that I've had with President Biden. I got to meet President Biden when he was Vice President Biden just, uh, just next door here uh, some years ago. And, and when you look at what was announced as far as the agreements that were reached, they were in over a dozen areas. It is extremely rich. So this is a make good. It's a continuation of the alliance. It comes at a time when China is in the balance. Which way is it going to go? And both leaders are going to see President Xi in the coming days. And uh, that's all really significant. So I see this as um, much more than just embroidery or symbolic on the relationship, but just digging deep on all the areas that they care about, a focus on the Indo-Pacific, but then also on other trouble spots in the world, such as Gaza, Israel, things like that, and Ukraine. Mm. And what are the main things that they've agreed in terms of Australian trade? We've heard a lot about critical minerals. Um, Australia obviously has critical minerals that we can mine, which are important for renewable energy technology, like wind turbines, batteries, and solar panels, I think. The US wants to be less dependent on China for those critical minerals, um, for obvious reasons to do with the geopolitics of that region. So this is also good for the US to sort of shore up their supply chains with a reliable ally like Australia. Is that right? It is. And it's also fantastic for Australia because it's now in a more pivotal position on something that's going to be really uh, decisive in new technologies and clean energy and battery and so forth for years to come. It's a win-win. 
AUKUS, of course, is in the range of agreements and cooperative programs on new technology, artificial intelligence, telecommunications infrastructure, climate change, clean energy. Uh, Pacific cables are going to be to link Pacific islands mm-hmm. and to improve their uh, telecoms infrastructure and so forth. There's going to be banking integration, space launches. Cape mm-hmm. Canaveral's coming to Australia, so there will be more things going upwards out of this continent. Let's talk about AUKUS because that is probably the primary reason why Albanese wants to sort of shore up the relationship and to make sure that that agreement, which is enormously important for our strategic interests, which we've put enormous amounts of money into and will do so for the foreseeable future, that deal is contingent upon the US Congress Congress and the US Congress legislating to progress it. The U.S. Congress is in somewhat of a state of disarray at the moment. Oh, I wouldn't get too concerned. <laughs> <laughs> what, well, it's, tell us about the disarray. They, the, the, they've, the disar- they've just elected a new speaker you know, for the time being. When these things come up sometimes, I, this year I'm saying more, it's unprecedented how many times I use the word unprecedented to describe what's going on. But there's never been anything like the drama that's occurred with a new speaker of the House of Representatives. Congress has a new House speaker tonight, ending three weeks of uncertainty and chaos. It was finally resolved this week with a very conservative fellow. A relative unknown, Louisiana's Mike Johnson, to the speaker's podium. A lot of people have expressed some doubts. Is AUKUS really going to survive and will Congress pass the legislation? I've never had any doubt about it. When there's a will, there's a way. And the relationship with Australia is as bipartisan as you get. And the concerns are really on making sure that the U.S. submarine capacity priorities are met and they will be met. I thought it was uh, really significant that President Biden said he has full confidence that this will be enacted by Congress. And and Prime Minister Albanese said the same. And he is meeting with, has met with uh, all the significant players in this in Congress. So there's some noise, but the signal is this thing is going to go through. And I think it has really broad support. Talk to us a little bit about the pomp and ceremony of a prime ministerial visit to the U.S. We saw that on arrival, Anthony Albanese and his partner Jody Hayden had a little private dinner with Jill and Joe Biden. And then, of course, there was the state dinner. The state dinner is a very grand affair. What does it involve? Is it a big deal? Why is it a big deal? Does everyone get one? Uh, not everyone gets one. Uh, again, there have only been four state visits to, during the Biden presidency. It was President Macron of France, the head of South Korea, Modi of India, and now Anthony Albanese is prime minister. There is a uh, quite a pomp and ceremony when the prime minister first visited the White House and on the South Lawn. You can see some of the crowd here, some almost 4,000 people. Um, that includes uh, staffers from the embassy, uh, from the White House, friends and family that are here to greet the prime minister as he makes his way um, for his official visit here at the White House meeting with President Biden. And so, this- and you have uh, military review, and you have bands, and you have crowds, and you have speeches and it's really a lot of hoopla. The state dinner is really a rare event and it is uh, a high social occasion. It's extremely formal, but cuts across the formality between two leaders so that they can really engage with the web of networks that support the bilateral relationship, whatever country is involved. And uh, I think you could just see 
all the warmth between the two leaders and their entourages. So a lot of the prime minister's staff, this is a lifetime achievement. They get to go to the state dinner. So the chief of staff went, a lot of press people went, the national security advisor went. So they have, they'll have tales to tell for a long time to come. Albanese is visiting the U.S. at a time when Biden is distracted by his domestic political challenges, shall we say, and also, most importantly, the horror of the unfolding conflict in Israel-Palestine. Will Albanese and Biden discuss Israel? Have they discussed Israel? What are they likely to agree, if anything? And will there be pressure points there? Will the U.S. be asking Australia to put in more or to contribute militarily? At the moment, Albanese seems pretty, pretty firm that you know, we'll be focusing on humanitarian aid and extracting Australian citizens from the zone as opposed to doing anything broader. They absolutely discussed it. And uh, the prime minister said that additional humanitarian aid is coming from Australia. I think the United States is satisfied with that. I mean, Australia is not a frontline country as far as the war is concerned and the Middle East is concerned, at least uh, this aspect of it in Afghanistan and in Iraq, of course, uh, Australia was uh, shoulder to shoulder in its military commitment. So, no, I, I think the prime minister would have gained a lot of insight into President Biden's thinking, and he's pivotal to this, the visit to Israel, his guidance and counseling of uh, the Israeli government and what it should do, the focus on humanitarian aid, the focus on a two-state solution as being ultimately the road to go down in resolving this conflict. And I think those messages are shared by the Australian government and are heartening to efforts to truly use this terrible crisis and ordeal to kind of break through into something that could possibly resolve it. So I see all those things being served. Obviously, there's a huge difference in the degree of engagement between the US and Australia on Israel and the Middle East generally. But is there a sort of difference in policy I'm thinking, is it likely down the track that the U.S. will get involved militarily in this conflict and there will be pressure on Australia to follow? The U.S. is already militarily. Two carrier groups are in the region and the strongest uh, signals are being sent to Iran, as President Biden likes to say, don't, don't, don't. Mm. I don't think uh, there's uh, an anticipated role for Australian military. I haven't seen any discussion of that. But again, I think where there is a bigger difference is in the political culture of both countries. And I think... There are arguments between pro-Israel and pro-Palestine and so forth. I think they're slightly more raw here than in the United States. Polling in the United States shows a real uptick in support for Israel. Here, there is that, but there's also a strong uptake in support for Palestine. So I think there's a little bit of a difference, but I don't think it uh, alters the posture of either leader and where they've said, this is our policy in the Middle East. I don't think see there's any change in policy for Australia as a result of this visit to Washington. Albanese is also expected to raise the plight of the WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange, who Washington is attempting to extradite to the US to face charges over the publication of classified documents. Will Albanese get a sympathetic hearing from Biden on the issue of Assange? I think the hearing will get he will get is if it is raised, and I have every reason to believe it has been raised. Uh, I think what he would get from the president is, I understand what you're saying. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, but I don't think the president would signal anything on this for the fundamental reason. There's something deeper as to whether wherever Joe Biden is on this issue. Uh, he has separated himself from the Justice Department and any decision taken by the Justice Department to prosecute or pardon or give uh, dispensation to anyone throughout his presidency that I'm not having Donald Trump's administration. I do not direct the attorney general as to who to indict and who to exonerate and what to do. It is up to the attorney general. 
And uh, wherever President Biden has been under investigation, and he is, a special counsel is looking at his use of classified documents, it has been independently taken by the attorney general. So the address to resolve the Assange issue is the attorney general. And I really hope that Australia is making a full court press with the attorney general. And to be effective, they really have to show precedence here as to why uh, mercy should be shown to Julian Assange. And I really hope that case is made. Mm. Bruce, you've worked for an Australian Prime Minister, Julia Gillard. You've also worked in the White House. So you can see both sides of this. I'm just wondering whether prime ministers usually get any political credit among voters at home for these kinds of visits, which are a big deal. Do voters at home care? Do they notice? Does it add to the credibility or the authority of the Australian Australian voters, of the um, Prime Minister in Australian voters' eyes? Just one thing for the record. I didn't work in the White House, but I've been in the White House and uh, <laughs> it was closely associated with some pe- with people in the White House. Um, I, I think it, I, the payback is not direct, not as direct as what you do on domestic policy. There's a stature issue and that, that you are treated as an important leader in the world. And I think that has a political benefit. But it really comes down to the lived experience of Australians from all walks of life. Are they doing better or not? Where you can take inter- international action to lift, help ease trade burdens imposed by China, I think, yes, there is a uh, reward for that. Sending troops overseas, I, that is tough. Even if the cause is supported, it's hard. So I think you can bask as a prime minister in the glow of being associated with the most powerful people in the world and where Australia is seen as a good actor in this world. I think that helps. I don't think it necessarily wins an election. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. I hope we can have you on again. I would welcome that very much, Jackie. Thank you so much for this. Now we will welcome our very own Paul Sakal, federal political correspondent, to discuss the fallout from the voice referendum, which already seems so long ago. (laughs) Thank you for joining me, Paul. Hi, Jackie. So, Paul, after the referendum, which was just sort of two weeks ago, Indigenous leaders asked for a week of silence while they mourned the result. And that period ended this week. And a letter was sent out. First, a draft of it was circulated and we published a draft and then the actual final copy of the letter. So can you just talk us through the draft and what what ended up being the final result? Yeah. So on the day of the referendum at about three o'clock that day, Indigenous leaders across the country started receiving calls from some of the central figures involved in the Yes movement saying that a document was being drafted which would, on the night of the referendum, tell the Australian public that the key Indigenous leadership was going into what they described as a week of mourning, which would mean that they weren't doing media for a week. They wanted to kind of grieve and think of a pathway forward, which was probably understandable. As that week went on, there was a second statement that began to be drafted again by figures involved in the Indigenous movement. There was a big email chain of about 50 people and the drafts were being worked through and there were track changes being made. And it became clear later in the week that a pretty sizable chunk, definitely not a majority, but a, but an important group of Indigenous leaders, many of whom had been around for a longer period of time, quite an experienced group, said in the email chain that they wanted nothing to do with this statement. It was too incendiary. Uh, it kind of criticised the Australian public for its decision and it was uh, likely only to cause kind of a an inflammatory moment in which it looked like the yes leaders had not accepted the result. Uh, our colleague, the Sunday political correspondent, Lisa Vicenten, got her hands on it. 
she published the draft in the Sunday paper before it was actually sent out. It then ended up getting sent out later on that Sunday, I believe, so a few days ago, and it was toned down a bit, but it was still very critical of the Australian public's decision. It called it a shameful act, and it said that um, the only kind of political entity or the only thing that needed recognition was not Indigenous Australians' role or place in Australia, but actually the, quote, ongoing non-Indigenous occupation of Australia. So it kind of questioned the political foundations of the nation. It also, at least the draft form, singled out some of the no leaders, the Indigenous leaders, so Warren Mundine, Jacinta Nambajimba Price, and said that they were basically frontmen for right-wing organisations. Isn't that right? It did. The draft document said that Jacinta Price, Warren Mundine and Karen Little, who's the lesser-known coalition frontbencher who's also an Indigenous woman, were front people for the Centre for Independent Studies, the IPA, which are think tanks that did play a, a serious role in the no side and had been campaigning for decades to kind of do what they describe as ending separatism in Indigenous policy, which really is Jacinta Price's mantra. What was the reception to the letter? Because Karen Little in, in particular, she made quite an impassioned sort of defence of herself and a rejection of, of the letter, didn't she? She did. She's one of the first Indigenous figures who have really come out publicly and said that this letter was a serious misstep. I mean, some people would say that she would say that. She's a member of the coalition. But her view was that it proved that the key Indigenous leaders involved in the voice referendum didn't understand even after the resounding loss, that the proposition they had put forward, this idea of a voice to parliament, was fundamentally flawed from the outset. And her view was that it was an arrogant statement, that it was an incendiary statement, and that it made a personal and false attack on her as a front person for right-wing think tanks, which she's actually had no involvement with. She's a person who's worked in Indigenous organisations. She's a businesswoman. She's a former journalist. It was, in her view, a personal insult made by a group of people who, in her mind, failed to accept the result. Karen Little also took issue with the assertion in the letter that the referendum result was a rejection of recognition of Aboriginal people in the Australian constitution or that Australian people don't want to do anything or don't care about the gap. That She said it was a specific rejection of the body of the voice, but overall recognition, uh, constitutional recognition is pretty popular. Yeah, this is a this is a point that she made that she believed the letter was misleading because it characterized the no vote as a symbol of Australia's rejection of indigenous people at large really. And I mean, not to speak for them, but you can understand an indigenous person feeling extremely disappointed by the outcome and thinking this was a vote on them and their role in the country. She would understand the psychology of people who would have taken this as a real personal blow, and I think we all understand that grief. But what she was trying to say was that if this referendum was held on a much simpler proposition, the proposition of merely symbolic recognition of the role of First Peoples in the Australian story, it would have won. And to characterise this as a rejection of that fact is she, in her mind, dangerous and doesn't send a positive message to the Australian community. It leads people to believe that Australia is fundamentally, you know, at odds with its Indigenous heritage. Mm. So we've had this war of words this week over this letter and the drafting of the letter, but I want to just ask you briefly about sort of concrete policy uh, developments, if there have been any. I mean, the government, there'll surely be pressure on Anthony Albanese to propose a policy that actually addresses Aboriginal disadvantage, given that his preferred policy has failed so spectacularly. Have we seen anything along those lines from the Prime Minister yet? 
The Prime Minister hasn't given any detail about next steps. He says he's waiting to kind of hear from the Indigenous leaders who are in this period of grieving. Some of the key Indigenous leaders are meeting this week and there may potentially be some movement from the Indigenous leadership soon. Um, The PM's away and has moved on to international affairs and kind of bread and butter issues. I think it will actually take quite a bit of time for the dust to settle and for there to be any kind of serious engagement between the Indigenous leadership and the top levels of government on a way forward. At this stage, we've heard very little from government about what their next steps are on not only reconciliation, but new ways to close the gap. But Linda Burney did say on election night that she hoped to have new policies, you know, practical closing the gap policies within the next few months, but we don't know what they'll be. Okay, well, when they're announced, we will have you back on, if not before. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jackie. Today's episode of Please Explain was produced by Chi Wong with technical assistance by Debbie Harrington. Our executive producer is Ruby Schwartz. Please Explain is a production of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. If you enjoy the show and you want more of our journalism, subscribe to our newspapers today. It is the best way to support what we do. Search The Age or smh.com.au forward slash subscribe. I'm Jacqueline Maley. This is Inside Politics from Please Explain. Thanks for listening.